Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons of Innovation, the podcast that brings you valuable tips and advice to help you succeed on your innovation journey. In today's episode, I am pleased to welcome Max McKeown, who for those who do not know him, he's an innovation and strategic advisor, a researcher, and a writer who focuses on innovation and strategy. Max is the author of several award-winning books, including the strategy book, Adaptability, and the book we will be discussing today is the Innovator's Book. Max, uh, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mo. Here in Nevada, close to the, the canyons, is that right? That's what I can see here from the window. No? That is absolutely what you see, but the reality is I am based in Brussels now, but that's, <laughs> you know, just the adjustment. <laughs> uh, really, finally, I'm really uh, glad to, to have you uh, on this show. Maybe before we just kick this off, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? How did you start your journey into the world of innovation? Yeah, of course, I guess there's, there's multiple ways of saying it. So, so more recently, my focus is all about uh, shaping the future. So I'm a psychologist. I've written books on strategy, adaptability, and so on. If you go where I have a PhD in strategy and innovation, an MBA, a degree in computer science, just so your your audience kind of know whether I, I'm worth listening to, it's up to them. But if you go way back, I, I guess in a way it starts from being conceived or maybe even pre that based on one's mother's eggs existing from birth and so, so on. <laughs> the, the idea that the personality and behaviors that, that come from innovation is that pursuit of the new. You want to do something better and something new. And it, it, it could be both of those things. You know, you have very boring people who want to do things that are better or to get better results. And you have very interesting people who just want to do it because they're playful. And I guess I was always both of those things. So if we want to go right back to the start, that's a a 10-month-old throwing himself out of his cot and walking around the the house and uh, discovering things and getting his brother to cut telephone cables and pulling down televisions on top of myself and drawing, 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 drawing investigating. And that took me right up to kind of my 20s where I was doing computer science startups, that that kind of thing. And we floated the company and that was all very successful. But it's all that pursuit of, as I say, novelty and better, the new and the better. Love how you describe that. Why did you marry psychology with computer science, with MBA, with research? How does all that fit into the world of innovation? Well, I was always interested, as I said, novelty and improving a thing, how things work and how to make them work better. So really, you can imagine it was quite a natural progression from that. You watch Sesame Street. I was a Sesame Street kid and an anti-coloring book kid. I don't know if your audience have heard of it, but this is the coloring book that isn't a coloring book. It invites you to, to draw what you want. So I guess I was always interested in how things worked. And if you consider that, by the time I was 18, well, actually, it was before then, when first home computing sort of hit, you're talking about the very first BBC computers, the Sinclair computer in the UK, those first computers, I I grabbed hold of one as a kid, went to a programming class, learned how to do it with all the other adults. So I was interested in, but this is both of those things, isn't it? It's going to change the world. And you feel like you're changing the world. As a person, that's what hackers do, that hacker mentality that says, understand how it works, take it apart, reorganize it. 
And if you take a very easy leap from that to the mind, the mind is what creates all of that stuff, that the matter exists, we reformulate it, put it together in different ways, imagine a better future, imagine different combinations. So we do that. So when computing, computing moving into psychology and neuroscience made perfect sense because what I was trying to do is understand the origins of this creativity and then also some of the blockers, what, what, what stops it. I mean, I don't really like faking. I, I like to understand what I'm talking about. So even one line as we may get to, even one line in a book or one word has been carefully chosen. And I'm saying, well, I've looked at the research, I've looked at the evidence, I've looked at the counterpoints, and this is the word I'm choosing for you. And if you pay attention, then I've guided you. So yeah, neuroscience, computing, but both right at the, the forefronts of human creativity. Love how you married that and the different piecemeal you just mentioned right now origin of creativity amongst other i think those in themselves require a whole episode if i am to start digging <laughs> just, deeper just on its own. yeah well we, we might get to some of my favorite books but but one of them is definitely the say the seven and a half lesson about the human brain the 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 lisa uh, barrett book you know fantastic i mean she she's a fantastic researcher Absolutely. I'm gonna maybe have to start moving probably to your uh, book, uh, Just Conscious of, of Time, but I would love to continue that conversation separately. Your book, uh, The Innovator's Book, is full of creative images. It's colorful. It's very small in size, which I really love, but also make me wonder, how did you, number one, fit all this great content in such a small book? But two, why did you choose put and bring out a book that is that colorful, full of images, and yet this small? Well, I suppose on the visual, just the real basic that we're of, generally speaking, I know there are people with a limited sight, but generally speaking, the human species is an incredibly visual animal. We learn to, to communicate by sound, but, but long before that, it was by gesture, as we see from our ancestors. Uh, and then we create symbols in the, the the sand and on rocks we're cave painters where we create language and pictograms you know right the way back so it's the earliest civilizations you could say were, were visual communities sharing their their ideas so one because it goes right back to, to there uh, another reason is because when i teach i also use and consult and coach i always go visual because people remember that stuff we all know that you remember visual metaphors very strongly, especially if they're kind of folk or they're very fundamental to our existence. So if I'm talking about a dinosaur and I'm drawing that dinosaur, you already kind of have a sense of what I mean so that I can build upon that. So memory, impact, uh, playfulness. Once I create something, if I create that picture of the dinosaur, as I said, you're thinking about it already. So you do things with it. You're imagining it, do, do, doing different things. Also on stage, I often use not only drawings, but uh, actual props. I might have a giant syringe on there to show that you can inject different components into your organization. And again, it, it's not meant to be less serious, as in less profound, but it is meant to take people with me and of course it's also a shorthand which gets to some of your, your other question about how, why so brief well because i want to squeeze people are really busy and i wanted to take the time to write the shorter letter as the the, the old story goes that's attributed to different people i wanted to take the time to night after night squeeze out the very best stuff 
so that if you're an innovator and you're a student of it, you, you will know what I've done and you'll appreciate it. But if you want to share it with your team or your organization, who, let's face it, feel that the number one reason that they don't innovate is because they don't have enough time, uh, you can hand this to that person and say, listen, just read that one page. I just want to discuss where we're going or how to get there or this aspect of culture or this aspect of design. So it's a book for being playful, remembering and for sharing. I really love that because literally this hypothesis, if I'm going to think about it, is actually real. Because the moment you gave this example about dinosaur, it literally brought me to the book where you have an image of a flipped dinosaur. And I thought of that page. And then, of course, the other example you just mentioned, but here and there, I might share this book or specific pages with friends and say, oh, have a look at this. It tells ABC and all you need is just one page to tell something really like that. I'm I think you've really found that. I mean, it, it does. It was designed before, of course, the, the 18 months of uh, turmoil that we've had, but particularly designed to be that aid memoir. You've done your event. People want something to, to, to take them with. They're not all readers. You know this. You might read two books a week. Most people, most business people read maybe one book after their degree. So there, there's a very fast sort of the tail off of, of bringing in new ideas. And we need to be able to communicate with people who think this stuff's exciting and people who don't and bring them along with us uh, using that old idea of getting people on the same page. But that same page doesn't have to be dull. It can be interesting and provocative in a way that brings people to, to this, a similar place. Yeah, certainly. And plus, like when you see the size, you certainly want to finish it in one seat, like two hours or something, and you're, you're, you're done. Not like so many. Yeah, it has a cute little bookmark, doesn't it, as well? I always wanted to do a hardback book with a bookmark so that you, and a little piece of plastic, that, like a, a moleskin notebook, so you knew where you were. And I, I must say that clearly people haven't seen it yet, but Every photo in there either was something I created in my studio with real toys and sort of posed them all and was playful or came from an, an artist that I had enjoyed and I, we gained permission to include that sculpture in there. So in a way, it's a little art gallery. You're walking into an art gallery of innovation. Well, that is literally make it an innovation book and that's what it is about. I love it. Uh, so maybe let's go a little bit into the uh, content. The book, the way I see it, is divided to three three parts, and each section is really about the jobs of innovators that you call out. Could you tell us a little bit more about those three jobs innovators have and expand a little bit more about what do they mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, first, the first job, you, you know, th this came from the idea that, that, you know, people say you only had one job when somebody's failed. It's the line in a Hollywood movie. You only had one job, usually an American saying it, but you failed. You had to hold the, the villain off or something. You had one job. So I thought, but what, what was the innovators? And it was slightly more complicated, but I wanted it easy to rem remember so the, the first job of an innovator is to make ideas useful. The second job of an innovator is to build a bigger brain, to collect people around your idea. The ideas already become useful to some extent, but you need more people, brains and bodies around your idea to sustain and to nurture it. Uh, and then you also have to help your idea to win, to win and to survive. 
So this is about strategy, but broadly, to, to actually protect that idea. And the difference here is that you can maybe concentrate on one of those jobs or at a time, but if those three jobs are not complete, your innovation will not be successful. So you can invent something in your workshop, but if you can't get your work, that idea, a collection of resources and people to bring it to market, then of course it's going to stay where it is in your workshop. It will be the forgotten innovation. If you take it to get some people around it, but you don't get it to the market, I mean, actually to help it to win and to fight off the other opposing and competitive ideas, then again, it won't survive, even though you've taken some money from some some people to bring it to market. So all three are necessary. And the effective innovator realizes that and doesn't just concentrate on one of those things. So if your innovation is not doing what you want it to do, you'll be failing at one or more of those three jobs and you can identify that which one and focus upon it yeah i I like how you put it because it's not just about uh, ideas it's literally making them useful then bring everybody around to collaborate maybe tell you more engage them leverage their experiences and then go out to actually see how can you win versus competition to bring value out of those ideas that certainly resonates uh, very well maybe we can dig a little bit deeper into those different areas by taking some examples from the book. You start by describing ideas as being like babies, beautiful, ugly, and not finished yet. I really love that metaphor and resonate with the many things you mentioned. But why do you describe them this way? Lots of reasons. One is because the baby that you have, I don't know how many people listening have children, but you, you have a child, you've produced that child with your DNA, and that child is beautiful to you. But when first born, kind of ugly. In fact, there was a news story I, I saw today with people, parents complaining that when they put the, their, when they're ill-advised and they put photos of their children online on social media, they're receiving a lot of criticism about how their children look, which of course they don't want to receive. They're quite shocked. They said, my child had dead eyes. They're saying my child had a weird head. So there's this juxta- this contrast between how beautiful we think what we create is and how kind of ugly or misunderstood other people may find what we have created. And, and that's true, of course, of ideas. And it's also true that even when they're beautiful, they're never finished. So when we're sharing ideas in a corporate environment, Often what people do is they share the ideas that seem finished and seem familiar are the ones that are accepted. And that's because they seem beautiful and finished. Unfortunately, they're rarely the newest ideas. And they're also rarely the ideas with the greatest power to to transform, to have an impact in the marketplace. That is likely to be an ugly idea. And the ugly idea is not only likely to be rejected for the wrong reasons by the wrong people at the wrong time, but it's also the most likely to be kept close to somebody because essentially this is a precious baby idea that they don't, you don't really want people to talk about your precious baby idea. You don't want the criticism. So you keep it to yourself, or at least you learn to keep it to yourself over time, unless you're a really crazy kind of innovator who cannot be shut up 
uh, and we can talk about that a little. There are those people. But do you really want, as a corporate leader or as a governmental leader, to depend only on the resilient innovator? That seems an awful waste of expertise and insight. You want to bring all the insight into the business, not just the crazy, uh, stubborn, mulish innovator. This certainly resonates uh, very well. Also make me think about different sort of ideas, which you uh, mention in the book, which you call actually idea zombies. What those idea zombies are and what do they mean, actually? Well, well, all the way through the book, because I'm because I'm bringing ideas to life, you have different type of ideas. I think I, I talk about idea sharks, for instance, as well. Idea babies, idea sharks, because I want you to think about their characteristics. So an idea zombie is an idea that consumes more than it gives. It's the living dead It's dead, but it doesn't know it yet. It sort of takes resources in, it gets in the way, it's unhelpful, and yet somehow it continues and is sustained. And you can have very big uh, philosophical and social idea zombies. You can have very big technological or ecological zombies, or you can just have things that don't work, but for some reason people keep feeding them. But sometimes it's smaller. It's just a thing that used to work, and used to be the best and doesn't work anymore, or maybe it never worked and yet it's still popular. It's still part of the business. And if you ask people what doesn't work around here, they'll tell you, but it might endure 20, 30, 40 years, and yet it's doing nobody any good. So you can get rid of these if you understand what they are and their nature. This actually makes me think about the piece uh, related to the culture of innovation. From one side, everybody speak about culture of innovation those days, especially corporate senior leaders, managers, that they want their staff to be innovative. They want their company to be innovative. Yet they struggle with bringing that culture of innovation. So from your experience, what do you think this is the case or what can be done better to arrive there? Awesome question. I, mean, I suppose it's at the heart of all of our work, isn't it? And it's, the, it's job two of the innovator if people are keeping track, it's the building a bigger brain part of innovation, because no matter how great your idea is, it's still going to need to be nurtured and protected and magnified it for the world to benefit from it. And the number one way of doing that or differentiating is, is the culture. But we have to pause for a second, and people don't always pause, uh, to understand what a culture might be in the first place. And so culture is very much that it's the, the habits, the traditions, the artifacts, the routines that, uh, that shape the response to any particular situation in an organization. That, so human systems have human natures, and those human systems can be described as having cultures, uh, multiple cultures in di different places. So we're not just talking about national culture and we're not just talking about whether you've got an innovation culture or not an innovation culture. So I suppose that I know that's big, but it really does matter to, to this issue of culture here because you can have a range and you really want somebody who understands the range and the sophistication if you want to go anywhere. I mean, if you only want some off the peg creativity training, and that is what your innovation means, then go ahead, buy it. That's creativity theater, innovation theater. Maybe it'll do some good. If what you want is to piece it together and sort of just 
repurpose some little, there's a flow of energy and ideas, then you need to find somebody who understands that stuff. And then you'll find that you might have an idea toxic organization that really hates new ideas, or you can have idea wasteful places uh, where they kind of, they, they don't mind them so much. It's just they never really use them. You see a lot of that uh, certainly in uh, in societies where they don't ban electric vehicles. It's just they don't do anything with them. And then you have idea for the friendly cultures where they, they kind of say, hey, come in, sit down. Hey, Mo, you know, I love your ideas. Sit down, uh, you know, but but they don't actively seek them. And the sort of epitome really is the high adaptability, idea hungry culture where people know that there is always a better way of doing things. So they run looking for those things. They experiment. They bring ideas in. They keep just saying there must be a better way. Let's find it. And I think that's why, well, I know that's why, say, a culture like Netflix seeks to be very uh, frank and, uh, and almost brutally honest because they're trying to keep testing out whether there's a better way rather than hiding it behind defensive routines, you know, to excuses, reasons why not to. Yes, we want innovation, but no, we don't want innovators. Yes, we want creativity, but no, we don't want to give you the slack and the time to try things out. We want to be a yes, not a yes, but no. So if you are to make this a little bit just more practical for a senior manager who says, I want to do something to help my team to become more innovative. What that advice you have? Yeah, there's a, a quote in my strategy book, and it talks about uh, however beautiful the, res- the strategy, you should occasionally look at the results. And I think it, it's very true here for innovation strategy as well. You're trying, you're trying to remember here, we're trying to get from where we are to where we want to go, a better place with what we have. But the difference with innovation is we're saying that in order to get somewhere good, we need an innovative product, or to get to where we want to go, we need to find an innovative way of getting there. We want to get somewhere that would be previously impossible. So I think in both of those cases, if you look around for the outcomes, and I would gather together a group, I download Speed Strategy Canvas of mine, And I'd look at job three of the innovator and I would say, how do we win with strategy? And I would look at where you think you are, where you'd like to get to, what's driving you and what's stopping you. And be really quite precise about saying what happens to new ideas around here? What are people saying doesn't work? So I would have an anonymous session where people can drop off all their complaints a properly anonymous session. I'd have a murder room and try to kill your best ideas. I'd have a shark session and try to build a competitor that's better than your business. I'd have a crazy ideas breakfast where members of your team have to bring an idea that they think will be laughed at, and that's their responsibility. I'd have a Dora the Explorer session where you go and try something new as a group so that you're constantly bringing new ideas. Because by doing that, You get new ideas to new ideas out, and that's guaranteed. If you want people to behave differently, give them new experiences. And that's why if we we were doing it, I can show you that the value that is in all these brilliant trillion-dollar unicorn companies came about when Slack sort of met Insight. 
And those things came together in a playful way. And then the value came from that. It didn't come from the very dull meeting and the role descriptions. So I don't know, that that was not just one thing. That was about half a dozen practical things that you could do tomorrow. I, I love that. And, and I like that you brought a strategy into the mix in here. We hear of a lot of companies started to work on innovation strategies. Yet when it comes to executions, it seems a bit different. They struggle with it. What do you think this is the case or what can be done about it? Well, I suppose there's a, a few answers to it. In some of them, uh, I think it's because somebody creates it, puts, have a session where they think about the values for an organization. They include innovation in that. They put it in a pillar somewhere on a PowerPoint slide and they assign it to an owner. But what they haven't really done is said, innovation must be a driver for the following reasons, and we will embed it in everything that we do. These are the ideas on business was what might stop us and, and so on. It has to be quite a re relentless uh, process. It, it can't just be a sideshow. So I think if you treat it as a sideshow, it continues to be a sideshow. And when there's any kind of failure or disturbance, somebody says, stop making so much noise. To give you just an example, I have a logistics client and I came along to their leadership session. This was the CEO and all his top people, top 20. And we spend two days going through these kind of ideas. And then when we have an idea creation bit, idea baby creation bit with his top team, We're trying to build a, a, an, an act, not a brainstorm, but an actual idea in the two days so that we come up with about 10 ideas that could be launched. And then we, we cost them. And we have, we had projectors that uh, were linked to computers and the internet so that we could bring in collaborators from around the world when the people in the room lacked the expertise to build the thing they wanted to build. So if they said suddenly we want to have the Uber of, you know, logistics for lorry driving, we got a team on in India that could build it. And we, you know, priced it up there. And then there was real momentum. And these are the kind of behaviors you need. But what a lot of corporates appear to want is tidy innovation, slow innovation. And they give it to tidy, slow people. So then they do the easy bits. They get the lease. They sign the training contract, those kind of things, rather than saying, how many ideas can we generate? How many can we put into the funnel? How can we empower people to actually build it in real time, interrupting our business as usual to replace ourselves? So, you know, back, back to Netflix, I'll keep as a constant example. You know, there you've got, you probably know the story, but, but there you've got this idea of constantly seeking to replace themselves with a better idea, constantly doing that every day. If you started like that, and the best pharmaceuticals companies are doing the same thing, they're saying, well, one of mine had a billion dollar drug And within a year, a competitor found a replacement for that drug. So they went from billion dollar revenue to zero. And he said, I'm never doing that again. We will replace our own drug. So now when he gets the billion dollar drug, he's already got part two, three, four, five, six, seven to replace it the very next month. So he's giving a shelf life of his very best idea of only, say, 12 months. And we see similar behaviors. So some of the people listening to this will just want to make people feel a bit more creative at work. But if you're serious about the business, you, you can build up to this kind of drive and momentum. See it, 
grab it, make it work. See it, grab it, and make it work. I, I, I like that. And there is a lot of things we can unpack in those particular examples you mentioned, but I'm, I'm conscious of time. And I just want to move to a final section where I call it actually a quick round. I'll ask you a few questions and you will answer them in a minute or so. The first one is, if you have a superpower to change one thing about the way senior managers or entrepreneurs approach innovation, what that would be? The one thing to change, I suppose, that's me having the superpower. It would be to, to help managers and leaders understand that they want to have rule changes. They want to give people the power, the expertise, the tools, and the permission to change rules for the better so that everybody has that kind of authority. It's a bit like a continuous improvement that Toyota has, where everybody is uh, empowered to, to change things, but also has a responsibility to bring an idea for change and to test it, every single person. And when you have that situation, if you're on the phone with somebody and you feel the service is bad and you, the person who's giving you bad service would actually say, stop for a moment and say, there's something wrong with this process. How can I change it? And they would know where to put the suggestion in, how to test it, and how to get permission for that to be the norm from, from now on. It's really the build the bigger brain and understand that everybody, everybody in your business is a brain and every brain has insights that can improve the part of the business they're in or the part of the business that they understand. That is actually uh, a huge power if you ever have it. <laughs> uh, sec the second question uh, I have in here, and you did share with us uh, earlier a favorite book. What is one of your favorite innovation-related books that you recently read? I, I, a, a few, maybe. I, I, I think Vaxxers, the book about the Oxford um, and AstraZeneca uh, vaccine attempts is great for seeing how innovation can actually happen. Uh, the Prepared Mind that was ready to go. Uh, bad blood, if you want a uh, reverse. We're at Tyrannos, the idea of empty innovation that gets all the money. I mean, they're an com amazing comparison. Gets all the money, but it was always fake and about being important. Empire of Pain, the Opoid book, similarly, the way that you can defend the idea zombie. Seven and a half lessons that I mentioned. Innovation Stack is a very useful book, the concept. But I also, which maybe is a bit unusual, I really love Super Pumped, the Uber book. And then also, I really like the Billion Dollar Loser book, which is about WeWork. But I take different lessons to, to it because I would say that the WeWork story is not entirely about being a loser. It shows you an awful lot about what works in terms of engaging people and while raising money and even pleasing customers and then just gives you tips. And I would read it again and say, well, how many of these things in Super Pumped and WeWork and even Bad Blood could be successful if I just tweaked it a little bit? Uh, I think they're very useful blueprints for further success. Thanks for all those suggestions. I have even a homework for myself because I haven't read them all, I have to say. So and I'm sure our listeners uh, would find some of those certainly uh, useful. One last question. What would you like to leave our uh, listener with before we conclude? I suppose it may be a few statements from the book. One is that 
culture and strategy should eat breakfast together and they should eat brunch together and they should eat dinner together. So really to understand that if you want to look after innovation, the purpose of the innovation is your strategy and the culture is what's going to get you there. So get them eating breakfast together. Don't allow them to be siloed and looked after separately. Allow them to, to really interact as they do in all the best uh, organizations and cultures. They're, 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 I wouldn't say in harmony, but they're, they're eating breakfast together uh, all the time. Uh, I would say also that stability is an illusion. It's always the beginning. No beautiful idea is perfect. So that means if you think you've missed the window of opportunity, you almost certainly have not. The, the internet opportunity grows bigger and bigger, the robotics, AI, 3D. Don't be put off just because you haven't done it yet. Do it now instead. And then maybe finally, if you don't start, you're finished. You have to start somewhere. There are some people who like, I think, innovation as a subject, and that's okay, but it's even better as a form of practical creativity, not a form of theoretical creativity. So to actually do it uh, is just a, a glorious use of your unique human cognition and ability, the, the power of imagination to shape the future. I, I love those uh, three different statements you shared, uh, especially the one around stability is illusion. Certainly resonates a lot uh, with me. Max, it's been absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope to see you again in the show. It's been a pleasure, Mo. Great questions, great interview. Thank you very much. Just before we leave, I'd like to ask our listeners to rate and subscribe to this show so that you don't miss any episode, but also to help others discover this show and benefit from this podcast. You can listen to this show on all your favorite podcast network, whether that's Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or any other network. If you want more information, you can check out my website. That is www.lessonsofinnovation.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.